Dear congregation of the Lord, what is God's testimony about the history of humanity? Scripture says that God created us upright in his image and likeness, but we have sought out many schemes. We disobeyed God by listening to the snake, the devil. Since then, rest has vanished from us as we became perpetual fugitives running away from God. But our merciful God promised to send the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the snake. To accomplish his promise, God saved Noah from the flood. Then he called from the heathens a descendant of Noah, Abraham. He made of Abraham a nation, the nation of Israel. But Israel became enslaved in Egypt. There, God intervened again, delivering the Israelite, the church, from Pharaoh's mighty claws. The goal was to give to his people rest in Canaan, to give them a place to be free to worship God without fear and in complete consecration to him. God appointed Joshua to conquer the land of Canaan for the church. Unfortunately, once in Canaan, what did the church do? The church turned to idols. God therefore allowed other nations to enslave Israel. But whenever they turned to God and cried out to him, he delivered them from their oppressors bringing them back even from Babylon. When the fullness of times had come, God sent his son, Jesus, to deliver the nation from their rebellious inclinations. But what did they do? They kept opposing and persecuting Jesus. And after one of the multiple episodes of opposition and persecution, Jesus pronounced a series of, of woes, as we just read, on all those cities, all those people who had disdained God. But he didn't stop there. He then turned to the Father in praise. Jesus, as the ultimate Joshua, renewed God's invitation to his listener. He graciously invited them to come to f and to find in him the cure that they need for their rebellious tendencies and restlessness. That gracious invitation is the object of our sermon today. Therefore, it is my privilege to proclaim to you Christ's gospel using the following theme. The sovereign Lord invites us to find rest in him, the sovereign Lord invites us to find rest in him. And the theme is subdivided in three points. So we see, because, why does he invite us? Because the Father wills such a rest. 
The sun is the only way to such a rest, and because the sun is the only, the best possible shepherd. First, the Father wills such a rest. The Son is the only way to such a rest. And the Son is the best possible shepherd. Our first point, the Father wills such a rest. Scripture says that no one, no one has ever endured such great opposition from sinners as the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we feel frustrated and disappointed when people oppose us. Imagine how the Lord Jesus Christ could have felt during his ministry. He was misunderstood by all opposed by the very people he made and sustained, the people he came to deliver. How does Jesus react in front of such a fierce opposition? Does Jesus, like us, break down in self-pity? Does Jesus quit his mission in anger? No, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus praises God the Father. How do we know? The word translated, I thank you, also means I praise you. Further, as we read, verses 25 and 26 are an open, public, joyful confession of the Father's works. And how do we call such public, joyful confessions of God's works? We call them praise, don't we? Jesus, when harassed on every side by haters, results to praises. Jesus is a joyful, strong champion. We want all to be on his team. Let us now examine the content of Jesus' praise. What does Jesus say? He addresses God as his Father, Lord of heaven and earth. He confesses that God the Father is the gracious master of providence, who has everything under control, even the fierce opposition that Jesus faces. Jesus then thanks the Father. Why? Because the Father has hidden, concealed, covered, closed the knowledge of salvation from the wise and understanding. Who are the wise and understanding? In Jesus' times, there were the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, and all the self-righteous Jews. Translated to today, they are the great of this world, the university people, the powerful, the famous, and all those people who think that they are masters of their own destinies. In brief, the wise and understanding are those people who are wise enough in their own eyes to the point of despising Christ. 
while God has hidden salvation from the great ones of this world, he has revealed it to some other people. Who are those people? Those are the little children. Who are the little children? In Jesus' time, there were the unsophisticated Galileans, tax collectors, prostitutes, and all those who realized that the Jewish legalist system was bankrupt. All those who realized that they needed a true savior. Translated to today, the little children are those conscientious of their spiritual poverty and of their need for salvation. Little children do not think, oh, I am good enough, I am better than you, or I can save myself. But they believe in Jesus' gospel. They believe in Jesus' good news. This concealment to some and revealing to others was God's plan. He wanted to ensure everyone understood that we we are saved by grace alone, through faith, and that it is not a work of our own doing, but a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 29, teaches something similar. There, the Apostle Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Suppose, for example, that God were calling mainly PhDs millionaires, and superstars. We would have easily concluded that fame and human greatness are criteria, criteria, please, for entering the kingdom. But God is wise. He does not play three ditches. He plays million ditches. In his wisdom, God does not want human pride to cloud his glory. Thus, he calls to himself the slave, the worthless, the little guys, the deplorable. Not that being a deplorable directly makes someone humble. In fact, many deplorables are also very proud. But when most believers are deplorable, it is easier to see that God's salvation is a demerited favor something that we cannot earn on our own. Jesus continues his praise in verse 26. There he says, Indeed, Father, he says something, I'm just rendering, he says something like, 
Indeed, Father, this is your desire, and it is glorious. Jesus does not give any other explanation except the fact that it is the Father's will. Why is it that Jesus stops at the Father's will? We are usually unsatisfied with this kind of answer. We don't like to hear, because it is the will of God. And so in protest, we ask, why is salvation by grace alone? Why is God sovereign in the call to faith? Why has God decided that salvation be only through the atoning work of his son? Why, why, why? Because it is God's sovereign, gracious, and good will. There is no higher authority. Therefore, there cannot be any deeper reason. God is the deepest possible reason. Dear congregation of the Lord, do we, like Jesus, rejoice in God's sovereignty? Or do we run away from it? Let us pray, God, that he may renew our minds and affections with his word and spirit to the point that we, like Jesus Christ, start rejoicing in his sovereign will. Only then will we be able to begin to find true rest in God. In a nutshell, what have we seen so far? Verses 25 and 26 teach us that the entire world opposes Jesus. And as the entire world opposes him, he does not fold in self-pity or quit in anger. No, he turns to grateful and joyful praises to God. Jesus' praise centered around God's gracious, wise, and sovereign will. According to that will, on the one hand, God calls to him those who acknowledge their spiritual poverty. On the other hand, he rejects the self-righteous. We also learn that like Christ, we should rejoice in God's sovereign will. Because embracing God's will is the beginning of our rest in him. But Jesus' speech continues. Jesus moves suddenly from praising the Father to praising himself. So we wonder, why does he do that? Is that godly? Let us see the answers to these questions in our second point. The Son is the only way to the Father. Yes, Jesus moves directly from praising the Father to praising himself, saying, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Is that not great pride? No. 
For us, it would be tremendous pride. But Jesus is equal with the Father. Jesus is the eternal, natural Son of God. While we are children of God by adoption for Christ's sake. Let us continue in our text. Do we remember in verse 25, in our first point, that Jesus called God the, the Lord of heaven and earth and Father? Jesus there praised the Father's absolute power and authority over creation and providence. Now, Jesus ascribes to himself the same power and authority. Why does Jesus praise himself? Jesus does so to introduce the special relationship that he has with the Father. He says, no one knows the Son inside out as the Father. What do we understand from this information? We understand that we cannot know Jesus outside of what the Father says about him. Sure, Jesus is God, and as such, we can partly know his greatness and supremacy through his creation. But what about his loving kindness? What about his gospel of salvation? We learn those things only in scriptures, in the Old and the New Testament. The Father used the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament to announce the Son and His works. And there the Spirit gave prophetic utterances, types and shadows of Christ. In the New Testament, the Father sent the Son. And the Father, at many instances, confirmed Jesus' Sonship through public declarations. For example, at his baptism or at the transfiguration. And there he said things like, this is my father, my, please, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. So we understand that whoever wants to know the son and enter into his rest must seek to understand the scriptures. Whoever rejects the authority of Scripture shows that he knows neither the Son nor his rest. Jesus continues by saying that no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Only Jesus knows the Father inside out. Jesus is the unique image of the Father to us. Just like the Father in his wisdom calls whomever he wills, the Son reveals the Father to whomever the Son wills. What does the Holy Spirit want us to understand from Jesus' statement? The Holy Spirit teaches us that Jesus is God. Jesus is the one calling people and giving them rest. Jesus calls and then we come, not the reverse. As the scripture says, we love him because 
he first loved us. Or in another place, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. Jesus called us. We did not choose him. The Holy Spirit also, next please, the Holy Spirit also teaches us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Whosoever truly fears God embraces Christ as he is. That is, the God-man, the eternal, natural Son of God. Whosoever does not embrace Christ as the God-man does not fear God. Thus, Muslims and all those who think that Jesus was just a prophet or a good man are perishing. It is black and white. There is no middle ground. Either you embrace Christ as he is and you shall find in him eternal rest, or you reject the testimony of Scripture about him and you will be in eternal trouble. In summary, what do we understand from verse 27? Verse 27 teaches us that Jesus moves from praising the Father to praising himself. Why? Because he is God. Because he has a special relationship with the Father. And as a result of that special relationship, Jesus is the only way to the Father. Jesus is the one who calls people to himself. And there is no possibility of knowing Jesus outside of the scriptures. After praising the Father and himself, Jesus extends a powerful invitation in verses 28 to 30. Let us see that invitation in our third and final point. The Son is the best possible shepherd. One question that we did not answer at the beginning is this. Why does Jesus praise God aloud in public? Of course, we say that Jesus was praising in response to the opposition that he was facing, which is true. But Jesus could have also, please, Jesus could have also done so in private, in his private prayer time. Why does he do so in public? We understand that the praise is also for the sake of those around him. The praise is also for the sake of his disciples. This public praise has a similar purpose to Jesus' prayer at Lazarus' resurrection in John 11. There Jesus said, Father, I thank you for hearing me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Thus, we understand that the goal of Jesus' public praise is also the invitation 
that he wants to make, to extend to his disciples. While others, most of the nation, is rejecting Jesus' teaching, Jesus, in love, turns to invite his disciples to receive eternal life, to receive true rest. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Who are those who labor and are heavy laden? Those are the children we spoke about in the first point. Those burdened by their sins, weighed down by their guilt. The Holy Spirit has opened their eyes and they realize that they cannot save themselves. They, through, they see through the pharisaical legalism and they know that they need a true savior. Jesus promises rest to those people. Now, what is that rest? That rest is freedom from the dominion of sin. Freedom from the fear of condemnation. God's deliverance of the church from Egypt was a picture of what Jesus would come and do. That is, deliver the church from the dominion of sin. Joshua's entrance into Canaan was a picture, a shadow of what Christ will come and do, which is bringing the church back into paradise. Canaan was supposed to be a resting place for God's people. But what happened? Joshua died without having conquered the entire land. Joshua was just a man. He could not drive away idolatry from the genes of God's people. But now we have Christ, the real and divine Joshua. He calls the church to him. He can change our nature, change our heart of stones into hearts of flesh. And he has made us a new race. The work of Jesus is perfect. It doesn't have any expiry date. It is once for all, without the need for boosters. Jesus has delivered the church from the dominion of sins. And when he will come back, he will deliver the church also from the presence of sin. Next, Jesus calls his disciples to take his yoke upon them and to learn from him. What are that yoke and that learning? The yoke and the learning represent the same thing. That is discipleship. Jesus says, be my disciple. Embrace my gospel in true faith, and I will save you. Why should people embrace Jesus' gospel? Jesus says because of his character. 
He is gentle and lowly in heart. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is mild, humble, compassionate, able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Despite his exalted position, he accepted to take upon himself our flesh and to experience our plight in order to become for us a merciful great high priest. Jesus is not a slave driver like the Jewish religious leaders, like Pharaoh, or even like our idols. He is a kind shepherd who leads us in green pastures, beside still waters, and restores our souls. Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep, who drank the cup of God's wrath to make our cup of blessings overflow. Next, in verse 30, Jesus calls the church to come to him because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Again here, burden and yoke are parallel to burden and learning. Burden and yoke represent the same thing. What? Discipleship. To be, but we think, to be a disciple of Jesus is an impossible task. That's what we know. That's what we have been learning. Because Jesus requires perfection. Jesus himself says, you therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. How then can Jesus' yoke be easy and his burden light? Why? How? Because Jesus laid down his life to fulfill the perfect requirements that we could not. He did it for us. All those who truly embrace Christ then become united to him. And as a result, God the Father gives them the merit. He puts on their account the merits of Jesus. And further, God the Father gives them the spirit of Christ. And the Spirit of Christ continuously works in their heart to help them to become more and more like Jesus. And as a result of the Spirit's work, peace, rest, and assurance of salvation replace condemnation. The knowledge of forgiveness replaces the burden of guilt and slavery to Righteousness replaces slavery to sin. Yes, Christ accomplished for us all the perfect works that we could never accomplish. And that's why we must hearken his invitation. We must listen carefully to his invitation. Conclusion, what is the sum, what is the summary of what the Holy Spirit wants us to learn this morning? The Holy Spirit wants to remind us of Christ's invitation. The Holy Spirit wants to remind us to turn to Christ for salvation, for true rest. 
Christ's invitation has three sections. In the first section, we saw how Christ rejoices at the great wisdom of the Father in sovereignly calling to him the deplorables, those that he has enabled to be conscientious of their spiritual poverty. In the second section, we saw that Jesus presents himself as the only way to God, the only one who can make us know the Father in detail. From such a presentation, we learned that true religion, the true fear of God, is always centered on scriptures, is always grounded in the scriptures. Finally, in the third section, we saw Jesus Christ as the best possible shepherd, the one who laid down his life for us to make his yoke easy and his burden light for us. Now, to end, I would like to rehearse to us Jesus' invitation. Do we realize how spiritually poor we are? Have we tried many times to please God in our own strength? Are we burdened by the multitude of our transgressions, by guilt, then this call is for us. Let us turn to Christ, the perfect shepherd. Let us pray him and ask him to give us that true rest that he's inviting us to. Christ is our only hope, and in his infinite mercy, he will never cast away anyone who comes to him. Amen.